Hello, and welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Todd Schlesinger, your Editor-in-Chief. We have another exciting podcast for you today. We hope that you enjoy. Hello, and welcome to a new Dialogues in Dermatology special series on augmented intelligence in dermatology. Join me, Dr. Adey Adamson, and Dr. Jules Lipoff as we interview experts on topics ranging from augmented intelligence regulation and standards, education for dermatologists and patients, and clinical impact on the field. Welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Jules Lipoff. I'm an associate professor with Temple University in Philadelphia. Today, we have the first of three episodes focusing on artificial and augmented intelligence. This episode is going to be an introduction about AI and augmented intelligence and where we are now. I have two awesome guests today. I have Dr. Roxana Danishu, clinical scholar and soon to be assistant professor in biomedical data science and dermatology at Stanford, and also an incoming member of the AI committee at the AAD. And I have Dr. Justin Koh, a clinical professor at Stanford and an outgoing chair of the Augmented Intelligence Committee. Thanks to both of you. Thanks, Jules. Great to be here. Excited for the discussion. Yeah, thanks for having us. Well, we want to talk about AI and who better than the two of you who are some of the foremost experts and leaders in the field. So hopefully we're going to introduce our audience. We have a lot of dermatologists, rank and file clinical people who don't know that much about this. So hoping that we can open up the conversation and teach them this may be a lot of people who don't know much at all about this. So let's just get started. And we hear a lot about AI in dermatology. It's been a hot topic. Certainly there have been a lot of tension around models that predict risk for melanoma, from photographs of moles, just like from that nature paper that you were co-author on, Dr. Ko. But how would you both, maybe we'll start with Dr. Donishu, how would you describe the current state of AI and AUI in dermatology right now relative to the average practitioner? I think right now what we have is a lot of really exciting research coming out, different kinds of models like image-based computer vision models like you referenced, which you know take an image and try to make some sort of prediction. And in particular, in the field of AI in general, there's also been a lot of excitement around these generative language models. I think a lot of people have heard about chat GPT, for example, a lot of the lay population is familiar with that. It's a lot of really like exciting things that are coming out. But in terms of what is happening in practice, there's only one FDA approved AI model for clinical use in dermatology. And it's not one that's even light photography based. So none of the sort of apps that have been discussed about, you know, that can maybe make some some prediction about a lesion, none of those have actually been FDA approved as of the recording of this uh, talk. On the other hand, with these like generative large language models, like ChatGPT being one example, these have been sort of already released into the wild and you see companies like Doximity trying to create like a healthcare version of it. And so these are ones that actually our day-to-day practitioners may actually encounter. And we can talk more about that later. Dr. Ko. I'd love to add on to, to what Roxana was saying about the state of the art and maybe start by kind of dispelling a myth with the genesis of this whole thing when 
actually a close colleague of all of ours, Rob Navoa and I took on this project to show, it was more of a showing that this could be done, right? We weren't in the business of trying to develop something that was going to put dermatologists out of business. But, you know, once we published that paper, that was the story, right? That was sort of what the hype was and what the press was. And I think it's so important for us to understand the difference between what seems like it should be possible and what we should be doing in clinical medicine. And I don't think we have to look very far, right? So we look at all this chat GPT stuff and immediately after it got released to the public, people started being able to use it. Like crazy stories, right? About how this GPT or Microsoft's version of it since he was telling a reporter to leave his wife, right? <laughs> like these crazy things that will happen when you have a new technology that's not, not been vetted, not been validated and not been assessed for what are the impacts that this could have in society. It's maybe okay for that to be happening in sort of the general public sphere, but in medicine, it's not okay. So I am actually very heartened by the fact that we did that study 2016, 2017. Five years later, there's nothing available yet on the market, although there are close things that are efforts that are pretty close. But that for me is awesome because that means that it's proceeding at the right pace. It's getting the right sort of things in place. It's getting validated. It's being studied. We're understanding how to deploy it, how to monitor it. And we're understanding like all of the challenges and weaknesses, all of the things that we've been doing over the past five, six years have been around, like, let's figure out why it's hard and what challenges we either expected or, or didn't expect. And we're going to see AI in clinical practice, not going to be replacing anybody anytime soon. And hopefully what we're going to see is it's really able to augment and increase the capability that doctors have, that our teams have. It's going to increase the, the capability of the care that we provide to our patients. And it's going to help enhance our workflows. It's going to do things that we used to do that we don't need to do. I don't need to be documenting a note while I'm in a room with a patient because some medical Alexa should be listening and essentially populating my note and populating my prior authorization. And by the time I'm done with that patient, all of those things should be teed up for my assessment and, and sign-off or, or editing and sign-off. So that's kind of what I think the future holds for us. And I'm glad it's taken the time that it has in getting there. I'd like to piggyback on something that you were mentioning about the media reaction to that paper was to frame it in terms of our dermatologists being replaced man versus machine, as which mm -hmm. is a common a framework that people talk about AI at. And I, I want to ask, do you think, to both of you, do you think this man versus machine framework is still persistent in a lot of how we talk about this? And can you relate it? For those of us who don't know in the audience that terminology, artificial intelligence versus augmented intelligence, why do we use those terms? I mean, I think that there has always been this hype around what can, because the term artificial intelligence is this catch-all phrase that is meant to be getting computers to mimic tasks that humans perform. And so that's why humans have sort of always been the benchmark. However, I think whereas augmented intelligence is about augmenting the capabilities of humans with AI. And I think that many people who re do research in this field recognize that there are significant limitations around these models. They can do really well in a like nice, clean, constrained task 
such as was described in the original Esteva et al. paper. But what we've seen as we've tried to take these models into the real world is that they're quite sensitive to distribution shifts in the data, changes in lighting, presence of rulers, you know, changes in the camera, the smartphone technology. And so these models don't always generalize as well as humans. And so really, if you put them in the real world, they don't do as well as humans do. And so what people are working towards now is, can we build models that will help humans do things better? So for example, like could help us triage better, could help us do administrative tasks faster. So it's recognizing through research that there's been a lot of hype in this space and that we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. This is technology that could have a profound impact on our field, but we need to identify in what spaces it can help us and then rigorously test using these AI models with humans to see where they're the most beneficial. I can completely agree with everything Roxana said. I think we live in a society where we thrive on competition. So it's always, a, there's always a versus, right? So when we had AI against Gary Kasparov, it, it was the man going up against the machine and, and in playing go, right? All of these initial kind of use cases. I think this is where the most promising and also most complex aspect of what it is that we're going to be doing with AI in medicine is going to lie. Because the interaction of the cooperation of and the ability of the technology and the people to interface is so crucial to whether this is actually beneficial or whether it just gets in the way or causes greater harm. So that ability to figure out, for example, how do you show a clinician something that when they look at it, they're going to feel like they are empowered, they're more confident, they're going to be more likely to make a better decision. I, I can imagine there are many, many other ways to show that data or show that information in a way where actually um, something poorer happens, right? So if we hold our standard, not just did they do this small classification task, right? Like you see a picture, classify into it a bucket. Boy, if that's what doctors did, yeah, sure, you know, we might be in trouble. But boy, I, I think you, all of us on this call and all the people listening know that doctors do a whole lot more than that, right? There's an er interpretation element, there's gray areas, there's a lot of things that go into the delivery of care that are not just these simple individual tasks. So I think it's the wrong sort of framework, especially for the complexity of what it is that we're doing, right? We're not playing chess against an opponent every day. We're doing actually in many ways things that are much, much, much more complex. And I'll take the, all the help that I can get in the simple mundane things, right? So um, I'll take all the augmentation you have to give me so that I'm not exhausted at the end of my day after, you know, three more hours of my health messages and documentation after seeing eight hours of patients. I don't know any doctor who would be against getting some augmentation that way, right? So I just want to spell something out as I, I'm concerned that might not be clear enough to some people who are really new to this conversation. That when we say augmented intelligence mm. as opposed to artificial intelligence, I think we're trying to get away from this false dichotomy of man versus machine. We're trying to show that we're working together with new technology for whatever greater good for whatever will optimize care. Is that fair to say? Thank you. Put it beautifully. Absolutely. And when we did the work of sort of putting out what the AAD, what the AAD's position on this was back a handful of years ago now, 
we purposefully made that distinction in the terminology that we use, right? To really move towards this idea of, we call it a human-centered approach to AI. And what that means is it's not technology-centered, it's not driven by technology saving the world or saving us from some dystopian future. It's in fact, it's saying that human beings are at the center of what it is that we do. For us, it's actually the doctor-patient relationship and that care relationship that's at the center of what we do. It's not replacing, it's not doing things without consent or without knowledge, it's not doing things in a way that humans are not involved. It is really augmenting that core relationship. How do we make it better? How do we do things that we can't do alone? So thanks, Jules, for making that explication. I just want to just another terminology thing, just to make sure that people who are entering these conversations have some facility. Maybe, Dr. Donishu, you could explain this, but for the average novice, what is machine learning? What is deep learning? If I don't know anything about these actual models and I'm just like a practitioner just doing my practice, what do these words mean to me or what should they? I think it becomes difficult because a lot of them are used interchangeably, but artificial intelligence is sort of this like blanket statement of tasks where machines trying to mimic human behavior. And there's uh, even debate within the AI community of what does that AI really mean? But that's like a very general definition. And then under that blanket, there are sort of different buckets. So machine learning uses sort of statistical methods to help machines learn from experience. That experience might be like labeled examples. There's also methods that learn from sort of unlabeled examples on a task. And then deep learning is a subset of all that where you use these neural networks. It's a form of complex statistical modeling, these deep neural networks to try to learn tasks. And in particular, that's been used a lot in computer vision. And so that's why you hear a lot about deep learning and dermatology, because a lot of the, quote, AI tasks in dermatology have focused on computer vision or basically trying to interpret images. Great. I think that was very clear. I mean, I think some people may use these terms differently and they can overlap and they can kaleidoscope and it's complicated, but thank you. Why don't we bridge from that into just talking about both of you gave me some overview about the sorts of things that are being done and the potential, but what is the current state of how AI models are being developed? What is the current state of industry and healthcare? What is going on right now? I think this is where we as clinicians, the subject matter experts, dermatologists hold potentially a lot more power and sway than we think we do. Because if we think about the efforts that are ongoing around AI, in medicine and in dermatology, they center really around what somebody thinks is the market opportunity. What is the space in which there's an unmet need? And it's usually the definition of somebody from the outside. I would say relatively rarely is it someone who's starting from the position of, I live this, I breathe this, this is the pain point that needs to be solved. And I think that's why you see the great majority of the efforts it's around take a picture or an image of something and classify it into that and make it clinically useful and relevant. And I think the other reason why that's the main focus is because that's where the data is and that's where the data exists. And you can't have AI without the data. So it's a matter of both convenience and it's also a matter of from the outside looking in, this seems to be where the market opportunity and use case is. And it may be, I would agree with it, but I would say that it's 
by far, far from the only one. I bet if we asked and we went to survey 100 clinicians, 100 of our colleagues and peers, yeah, maybe that would be one of the things, but it'd be one of 20, 50 things. So I think that is an opportunity that we have as a field to create some sort of broader perspective about what are the things that we do on an everyday basis that if we had the ability of a technology like an AI to help us, we would do better. And so some of those things may be administrative things. Some of those may be very much clinically oriented things. Some of those things may well be in the realm of, yeah, I want to take a picture and I want somebody to tell me what bucket that falls into. But that's what I see right now. And I see sort of a singular narrow area of focus. And hopefully as the years go by, we'll see actually a very significant broadening of the kinds of things that are being developed and being deployed in, in our in our field. I think the local and global pictures are a little bit different. Globally, there are companies that have developed direct-to-consumer apps, particularly in Europe, making claims around being able to diagnose melanoma. And I think that subsequent real-world studies have sort of cast doubt on how well those work. Thankfully, in the United States, we have the FDA, and the FDA has really been trying to do a significant amount of discussion with experts to understand how to best regulate AI models. And in my mind, I feel like the direct-to-consumer route is, to me, like a concerning route to go because, as I've mentioned, these models have significant limitations, opportunities for bias, and I really feel like we need a physician in that loop to help out. And so... I think a lot of dermatologists would agree with that, that there are a lot of opportunities here, but we're not really anywhere near what we need to be to release models directly like into the population as has been done outside of the U.S. And I know that other dermatology societies outside of the U.S. have really spent time trying to educate their patient populations about the limitations around these direct-to-consumer AI models. That being said, I'm excited to see, you know, what the data looks like for people developing this technology. I think it's really important that we have real-world randomized controlled trials of using this technology in the intended use case by the intended user and to see whether the technology holds up. We don't just give a medication to a patient just based on the feeling that it might work. We have trials that demonstrate that that medication works. And I think the same thing needs to be true of this technology. We need to have real-world randomized controlled trials to show that this technology improves patient care, doesn't harm patients, doesn't have biases that cause worsening disparities in healthcare. That's kind of what I've been thinking about the current state. It definitely seems important we need to be researching it to develop this in many ways. One point of clarification earlier, I think it was you, Dr. Donishu, you mentioned there is one FDA-approved model. Is that right? Yes. What model is that? There is one FDA-approved model. It's meant to be used by a clinician, and it uses electrical impedance. So it's not image capture, and it's not direct-to-consumer. So you were talking about the importance of diversity, of clinical trials. When you've spoken about this before, you've mentioned that many AI data sets are siloed. What does that mean and why might that be a problem? What that means is that the 
data that the model was trained on is siloed in a company or by an academic institution. So it's not possible to analyze like what that data looks like. And especially if the group has not reported the specifics of your data, you don't know whether that data is diverse, whether it shows all late stage melanomas or actually has a variety of sort of early and late stage melanomas, how many amelanotic melanomas might be in there. So I think that basically when you have data silos, what that means is that there's not transparency about what's gone in to the AI model black box. It, it seems that that's been a problem, for instance, when you learn about like Google models having very little skin of color representation and things like that. Is that an example of what you're talking about? So, in fact, I'll say that, that they reported out the Fitzpatrick skin tones in their model. And so that's how we knew there was very little representation. But for most models, they don't even report that information. So we really don't know. Like, So we could say that about that model because they actually took the step of reporting the skin tone variation. We don't know that information for a lot of things that are published. And so that is a part of the issue of data transparency, which we've written about before in JAMA Dermatology about the lack of transparency and potential for bias in artificial intelligence data sets. Yeah, definitely. If I guess we're thankful that we have that transparency, but who knows what other problems exist that we don't even know about, right? Because of how siloed the data is and how opaque it is. So I think this leads into my next question. What are some of these best and worst case scenarios for how we're investigating AI and how we're implementing it in dermatology? Why don't we start with you, Dr. Koh? I haven't heard from you for a little bit. I'll talk about one of the opportunities and challenges we have for progressing in AI in our field. We're a different field than if we take our radiology colleagues or pathology colleagues or even our, our cardiology colleagues. All of the colleagues in those fields that I just mentioned, when they're doing their work, their interpretive work, whether it's reading a film or it's reading a slide or it's performing an echo and assessing the sort of results there, when they're doing their work, they're capturing the data and that data lives on in posterity. They essentially in making the diagnosis or, or in doing their work have what we call labeled sort of the data. And they have that pairing of the label and the data, the image, in some cases, a slide image or the diagnostic test. If we think about what we do on a day-to-day -day basis in dermatology, we see and help tons of patients. My goodness, right? We see a ton of skin. We make some assessments. We make diagnoses. We don't often, I would say it's probably the minority of instances where we have the diagnosis or outcome and the data in the form of an image, which is the most robust form of data that I think we capture outside of the pathology and slides. Yes, we have notes and there's great effort with Dataderm and other efforts that try to capture and create big data sets around that. But I think we have an opportunity by further integrating the concept of imaging as a standard standard practice for how we deliver our care, because then truly what we're going to be able to do is we're going to be able to, in the course of our daily work, not through extra, extraordinary means and efforts, we're going to be able to have the data that's in the context of the clinical record with the images to be able to put that together to start to ask and answer some very interesting questions, right? 
How about longitudinal sort of relationships as you start a patient on therapy? How quickly do they get better? What does it look like? Where do they get better first? What biologics are better for certain people given certain demographics or certain genetic characteristics? That's the real potential of AI and big data is to be able to get really quite sophisticated in a way that can personalize our care and be able to make significant impacts. But we're never going to get there unless we mature our ability to develop and capture data. And so that would be my hope for the future and hope for our field is that we're able to go down the path of saying, how best are we able to capture data through imaging? How can we make some of this more standard in our field so that we really can capitalize on all the amazing care that we deliver to our patients on a daily basis? Anything you'd like to add to that about best and worst case for how we're investing, implementing AI right now, uh, Dr. Donishu? Yes. Let's just start with the worst case and then we'll move to the best case. I think the worst case is that we put technology out there that's just not ready to go or that has significant biases and we end up harming patients. And this is not something that's theoretical. We have seen this outside of medicine where people have implemented algorithms around like, for example, whether or not someone's going to commit a crime again after the risk of committing a crime again and found that these algorithms are significantly biased. And we've actually even seen this within medicine. Ziad Obermeyer wrote a Science 2019 paper where he analyzed an algorithm that was already implemented on millions of patients that was supposed to predict which patients needed additional support upon discharge from the hospital. And what they found is that the algorithm preferentially put resources towards white patients over black patients. And the reason was, is because it used healthcare spending as a proxy for how sick the patient was. And so even though the people who designed the algorithm didn't intend for it to be biased, it was behaving in a very biased way. And here was an algorithm that was like already implemented in a space where there are already existing healthcare disparities. And so that's like, to me, like worst case scenario is causing harm to patients causing differential harm that exacerbate disparities. And this is why I think that real world data and real world monitoring is so important. The best case scenario is we build models that we have rigorously tested are rigorously monitoring in order to know if it, there's some performance differences and that these models help us provide better healthcare, streamline the healthcare system, improve access, improve outcomes, all of the good things that all of us want for our patients. So I want to ask one more question and then try to get this talk all together. I know you both are very busy. Coming off what you're talking about, what could go right, what could go wrong, what are the current regulations about AI reporting standards and AI do you think these should change or how do you feel like they should grow? I think that this is an area of growth. And I will say that the FDA recognizes this. And of course, Dr. Ko can comment additionally. Over the summer, they had a two-day expert panel on single lesion analysis devices, essentially like devices that analyze images of lesions. And during this two-day expert panel, they brought in tons of expertise to discuss how these models 
should be regulated because currently AI is treated as a software, as a medical device. And we've previously written a paper in Nature Medicine about looking at sort of what the reporting standards have been for previous AI devices that have been approved. When we published that paper, there was 130 devices that had been approved. That number has surely gone up since then. And what we found is that a lot of the public information about the devices, based on the public information about the devices, that a lot of them were approved on retrospective data analysis and were tested on a single site, which we now know could be problematic because models might perform differently at different sites. And of course, like the gold standard is the prospective randomized controlled trial. I think that the FDA is well aware of this, and that is why they are engaging so vigorously with experts to try to improve. And of course, we're all learning here because this is a new area of technology that has been very rapidly moving. It's such an interesting point because we are on the cusp of all of these amazing capabilities and without yet sort of the formal rule book that's so comprehensive that can really deal with what's different about this versus previous devices and previous kinds of algorithms. And I think the other piece, in addition to what is the validation necessary to secure approval, is the concept of how do we continue monitoring this in the real world? And so that aspect, there's a lot of high-level guidance principles, but I haven't seen a whole lot of, okay, where the rubber meets the road, that means we're going to do A, B, and C. And if C is above this threshold of this, then we're going to do this. It's the same thing that laboratory medicine has developed over the course of time, where you know how to calibrate an instrument. You know when that's out of whack. You know when you got to shut the system down because results are coming out that are not good. We need to get there for AI tools in medicine. And, and it's going to take us a little bit, but we're learning as we're going. And I think it takes the responsible development of people who have the right intentions but it's also going to be, take people who know the space, who know the clinical medicine. And so, again, I'm going to put in the plug for us as dermatologists, as experts in the field. Don't be afraid of the technology. Embrace it and also shape it, right? Because no one knows better than, than we do. And no one has more skin in the game than we do. Because this is our livelihood. This is our practice. These are our patients. That would be my plug is really it's let's be involved in this. Let's not let it happen and us dealing with the consequences after the fact. I think we have to be engaged. We have to be right there, shoulder to shoulder with the folks who are developing these things and recognizing that the future of our practice is when we are using technology to do better than we can do alone. Thank you. I think this has been a really great conversation, a really good introduction to AI for a lot of listeners. I just want to close by giving both of you a chance to share any last key points or take-home messages that you might want to leave with our audience, maybe thinking about how dermatology can play a role as the leader in this space? I think that we can look to our colleagues in radiology who have really sort of taken a major leadership role in leading this conversation around AI in their specialty. And I'm really grateful to the leadership of the American Academy of Dermatology and the prior iterations of the Augmented Intelligence Committee, because dermatology is gearing up to do the same thing. We are sort of in the earlier days of this melding of AI and dermatology, but we are continuing to take an active role to make our voice heard 
And I think it's going to be really important to sort of train our residents and young faculty in this space to be able to read and understand AI papers the same way that they read and understand clinical trials and to be able to be critical thinkers around claims of AI and to be advocates and voices for our specialty. So I'm really grateful to the work that the American Academy of Dermatology has been pushing in this space and will continue to do. And I hope that there continues to be a significant interest in this space. I don't have anything else beyond that. Roxana, you said it so beautifully. I think maybe just one point, if I could hit home on top of all of what you just said. Sometimes I think, especially where we live in Silicon Valley, we're overawed by technology, right? And we see this as, ah, if there's technology for it, that's the answer. Hopefully these past few years and, and with AI, we can flip that completely on its head and understand that the technology is not the thing. The technology is not the solution. It's our human ability to use it, to shape it, to develop it, to wield it. That really is the thing that makes the difference. That's the hard part. Oftentimes the technology, the development of the technology is the easy part. Is the how do we make it work and how do we make it work for us and how do we make it work for our patients? I do think we can get to a future where we're driving high value healthcare along with technology, along with AI, but it's going to be us. We're the ones in the center of it. We're the main players in the story. Well, thank you for all of those perspectives and your expertise, Dr. Ko, Dr. Donashu. We're in your debt for opening this first of three episodes in dialogues on artificial intelligence. If you've enjoyed this, please listen to all three. This has been Dr. Jules Zipoff. Thanking you for Dialogues in Dermatology. Join us next time. We hope you have enjoyed this edition of Dialogues in Dermatology. This is Todd Schlesinger, your Editor-in-Chief. For more podcasts, including bonus issues, check us out online at the website of the American Academy of Dermatology or through the Dialogues in Dermatology app. You can now also sync your subscription to your favorite podcast app. New podcasts are released each week in addition to our monthly JAD podcasts. We hope you enjoy these new options for listening to Dialogues and the increasing content for your listening pleasure. Thank you.